This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Welcome to Armchair Explorer on location. Travel and adventure stories recorded in the field in the most immersive way possible, designed to give you a glimpse of what it feels like to be there for real. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey guys, it's spooky season. The air is getting a little bit colder and the pumpkins are getting a little bit oranger and there's lots of beautiful color in the trees. I don't know about your house. I love this time of year. My house is just a madhouse of skeletons and spider webs and all sorts of crazy costumes. I think I'm going as a traffic cone this year or that's what my daughter told me anyway. But you know what else I love about this time of year? I love when it gets a bit colder and you can sit around the campfire, especially when there's a good ghost story to be told. And I've heard quite a few of those in my years. And that's why I'm excited to bring you this episode today. It's about the myths and mysteries of Rocky Mountain National Park. So Estes Park, which is the town on the edge of Rocky Mountain National Park where you stay when you go there, it was founded more than a hundred years ago. And of course it was inhabited for millennia before then by the Utes and Arapaho Native American tribes. And you don't get that kind of history without a few tall tales building up along the way. Legends and ghost stories retold through generations. But as we we're making this episode, what I realized is myths are more than just tales. They're a part of living history, a part of the fabric of a place passed from campfire to campfire, woven through the lands and the invisible threads of our imagination. And by following those threads, we're not only going to have some fun, but we're also going to see a side to these Rocky Mountains that most people don't even know exists. That's what I loved about making this episode. I never, ever saw this landscape in the same way, and I never, ever went out in it after dark again. So we're just about to get going. And just a quick disclaimer before we kick off. Our on-location episodes like these are big productions. They take a lot of time to make and money. And that's why we partnered with Visit Estes Park to make this episode. They help with the funding, but the storytelling is all ours. And rest assured, guys, I would never share anything on this show that I didn't personally love and think that you will too. So I hope you enjoy it. Sit back, maybe stoke up that campfire a little bit, pour yourself a drink, because this is the myths and mysteries of Rocky Mountain National Park. Welcome to Exploring Estes Park, a podcast about Colorado's original playground and the base camp to the Rocky Mountains, its history, its people, and its secrets. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and eight years ago, I left my home in London, England to come here to these soaring peaks of Colorado's front range. I've spent my life writing about the world's most beautiful landscapes, and this might just be the most beautiful of all. So come with me on an adventure through one of my favorite places in the world, 
We're going to travel from the top of its mountains to its ice blue alpine lakes. We're going to hear from its original inhabitants, the Ute and Arapaho Native American tribes, and the stories of the people who founded this town and who are still shaping it to this day. We are exploring Estes Park. In this episode, we're going to have some fun. Estes Park was founded more than a hundred years ago, and of course it was inhabited for thousands of years before then by the Utes and Arapaho Native American tribes. You don't get that kind of history without a few tall tales building up along the way. Those legends and ghost stories pass from campfire to campfire, told and retold through generations. We're going to hear some of those stories, from buried treasure to haunted keys, and even a spooky old tale that may make you never want to go out in the Rocky Mountain mist ever again. But myths are more than just fairy tales. They are part of living history, part of the fabric of a place woven through the land and invisible threads of our imagination. And by following those threads, we'll not only have some fun, We'll also see a side to these Rocky Mountains that most people don't even know exists. Get ready for the myths and mysteries of Estes Park. So I've just arrived at the Rock Inn, which is a really cool bar in the outskirts of town. And I'm here to try out Elkins Whiskey, which is one of my favorite drops. It's a local distillery. But I'm also here to find out about one of Estes Park's most enduring mysteries. And it involves some buried treasure. I came to Estes Park for the first time in 1872. Among this is the Earl of Dunraven. Well, okay, it's not the real Earl. It's Estes Park's professional storyteller, Curtis Kelly. But he's in character, and that's about as close to the real Earl, who passed away in 1926, as we're gonna get. As he talks, we sip a glass of whiskey, because, well, that's the Earl's favorite drink, and it lies at the heart of this mystery. I recall one summer evening, it was a hot evening, and I remember sitting at one of the cabins on the homestead of Griffith J. Evans, the Welshman for, with whom many travelers would come to stay. Well, on that particular evening, I believe we were cleaning our guns and smoking our pipes, and in the distance, I saw something moving there across the meadow and the valley, and as it moved closer, I began to see that what it was was a, a man and a donkey. And this man seemed rather decrepit. I do not know what ills had befallen him, but somehow he had found his way into the Estes Valley. And as I began to see his donkey, why the donkey seemed equally decrepit as the man riding it. it. It seemed for a moment it might almost be more fair for the donkey to be riding the man. But these two uh, poor souls came zigzagging and must have uh, maybe caught a whiff of the scent of my pipe and saw the smoke. And as he drew closer, I saw in his eyes, uh, uh, he was, a, as I suspected, a very 
decrepit soul, and yet there was a gleam in his eye as his question seemed to form. And he leaned in toward me with his rather parched-looking lips and said, Good sir, uh, can I ask you a question? To which I said, Why, yes, what do you wish to know? That gleam in his eye seemed to glow as he asked, I wondered, uh, is this here a good place to drink whiskey? Ah, and at that question, I felt a kinship to this poor fellow. And I smiled and said, why, I cannot think of a place in this continent that is not a good place to drink whiskey. Why, even in some of the dry states, uh, indeed. Ah, and at that reaction, he leaned in closer and said, well then, uh, can I ask you this? Do you got any? Sadly, I had to respond at that moment truthfully. Good sir, no, at this moment I, I have none and certainly none to share. Well, he seemed crestfallen and mounted his donkey and zigzagged back through the valley into whatever place, canyon from which he had arrived. And it was at that instant that I realized I was witness to a phenomenon. Why, in the coming weeks, there would be maybe five, maybe 10 souls like this traveling to Estes Park. And soon these fellows would be setting up their tents and drawing lines and marking places, squatting with their tents, looking for places to file homestead. What would become of this beautiful valley if all of these people would come and carve up our magnificent experience, this great open meadow, this valley to hunt would no longer be our domain. And I submit to you that if you were in my shoes, you would act as well and do what I did and use my wherewithal to acquire homesteads, acreages, and ultimately what would become some 6,000 acres of this Estes Valley that I would acquire through my holding company. It made him very unpopular. In fact, it was called the greatest land steal in Colorado history. Foreigners were not allowed to claim land under the Homestead Act. So instead, he bribed the locals into doing it for him and then immediately bought that land back for himself. By the end of it, he controlled almost the entire Estes Valley as his private hunting grounds and decided to build a lodge and hotel on them so that he might share it and some of his precious medicinal comforts with his friends. You see, as I would go on in future years, I and my company would open what would become the Estes Park Hotel or the English Hotel there along the banks of Fish Creek and we would begin to welcome, it perhaps was one of the, at the time, one of the most luxurious lodges in Estes Park. And at the end of each season, there would in some cases be a surplus of whiskey that we might not have been able to finish. That is the buried treasure. The Earl liked his whiskey so much and trusted the inhabitants of Estes Park so little that he dared not leave it behind. And so our 
good workers were instructed at the end of each season to bury that whiskey for safekeeping. Now it seems, and I am told, that somewhere along the way, some of that buried whiskey became lost in time. And we have tried to find it and we have tried to seek it. And we can only imagine uh, how very ripe it would be after all these years. So that is why, as I reflect on these stories, it is as we enjoy this beautiful evening, it is a pleasure to be with you and share a whiskey in Estes Park. And I know that to this day, perhaps we shall raise a toast to the continuing enjoyment of medicinal comforts in beautiful Estes Park. So medicinal comforts, <laughs> I'll drink to that. Mm -hmm. But sir, I think I've got a bit of Scottish blood in me, so I think uh -huh. if I maybe head over there and put my nose to the ground, I might just be the lucky one to find uh, it. Yes, very good, very good. <laughs> but probably not. For decades, up until the mid-1900s, people looked all over for it. And some of them were quite serious about it. At this moment, I am, I'm sort of shedding the, the coat and garb of the Earl of Dunraven and, and stepping back into the, the storyteller, Curtis <laughs> Kelly. Uh, <laughs> so will, will anyone ever find it? We don't know, but I suspect we'll never stop wondering about somewhere out there in uh, Dunraven Glade, uh, will they find it? Now be honest with me, Curtis, have you gone looking for it? You know, um, the CSU archaeologists were out there and they took some pictures and made some notes. And I remember when all the cars pulled out of the lot and I, I think I was the last one there. And I, I tend to do that. I tend to linger and want to reflect. And, and I found myself, as everyone left, thinking, maybe I'll be the, the one to receive this knowledge. Maybe I'm here at the right time. And, and maybe now that I've heard some of the lore and it's on my mind and I, I, I couldn't help, yeah. And that's what overcomes you when you're on the trail. You're thinking, oh, there's a little indentation around that rock. <laughs> Perhaps a little clue might be awaiting me, so. Mm. And so CSU actually went there and did an, an actual archeological study. That must be the only archeological study in the world looking for whiskey. It may not rank up there with, um, you know, the, the great digs in Egypt and, and you know, uh, fossil beds and things. But yes, uh, I'm sure that uh, somewhere in the annals of archeology, span someone will be thumbing through someday and they'll get to, oh, uh, there is a precedent for whiskey research, buried whiskey. <laughs> so, you know, despite his aristocratic stiff upper lipness, the Earl of Dunraven sounds like a lot of fun. Was it a bit of a party house around his house then? Hmm. Oh, there was that incident where a mistake happened and I was, I was ejected from my hotel. Now, I know that you... Uh, Curtis you know, couldn't it's, resist. He's uh, conjuring the Earl again. Proper-minded people do not wish to hear a scandalous story. Now, do you? You see, there was a misunderstanding, and that evening we were having a, some great festivities at the English Hotel. Well, we were probably imbibing and some wonderful whiskey as we are around this table this evening. And uh, now there was a, a manager that particular summer, a Mr. Stetson, I think his name was, who had been instructed that if any of the guests of the hotel become too raucous or rowdy, that they shall be spoken to and ejected from the hotel. I was in the company that evening. I was not in the company of Lady Dunraven, as I recall, but the American actress Kate Monroe, and we were enjoying a fine conversation, uh, enjoying ourselves. And due to a misunderstanding, I was told to leave my very own hotel. And now this would have been bad enough, but 
One of the early histories of Estes Park was written by the very, the very uh, proper and uh, over-prim uh, Reverend Elkanah Lamb. And when he heard about this story, he, he recorded it in his history of Estes Park. And this, this rather unfortunate misunderstanding has become part of the lore. So yes, um, your reference that we, we did have a bit of a, uh, a party atmosphere, but I would say within the bounds of proper uh, gentlemanly conduct. Well, we're in the rock inn, and I gotta say, I think the Earl sounds just about as rock and roll as you can get in the 19th century. We're not gonna be able to enjoy his his whiskey, not yet maybe, but we are enjoying a nice drop yes. of the Elkins and that comes pretty close. Cheers, Cheers. thank you so much for sharing My this pleasure, yes. <laughs> Here's to good whiskey in the mountains. The Earl of Dunraven's whiskey is out there somewhere in Dunraven Glade. And if you're very, very lucky and you keep your nose to the ground, you might just find it if I don't get there first. But there are other mysteries in town. And the one that you should definitely not miss and where we're headed right now is the mystery of the keys. up with Curtis again later. But for now, we leave the Rock Inn and drive six miles south to just opposite Lily Lake, where down an old dirt road is one of Estes Park's most historic hotels. I've just arrived at the Baldpate Inn, which is now called the Seven Keys Lodge. It's an old rustic mountain lodge looking down across Estes Valley. It's a beautiful spot. There's no buried whiskey, as far as I know, but there is a great story. The original Bald Pape opened just over 100 years ago in 1917 by Ethel and Gordon Mace. They put their heart and soul into this place. And let's just say they found it pretty hard to leave. Let's go and check it out. Yes, hey, how are you doing? Hi, Mary. Nice on. to meet you, thank you. This is Mark. Hey, hey Mark, I'm Aaron. How are you? Nice to meet you. Mark and Meredith Powell are the new owners of the Bull Pate Inn, now called the Seven Keys Lodge. They're a really cool couple. They live full-time in Estes Park now, but Mark's a country musician from Texas. They run a big music festival down there every year. So buying a 105-year-old hotel and moving up to the mountains wasn't exactly in their plans. They were up here for some hiking, saw a for sale sign, and the next thing you know, they're knocking on the door. When I walked in the front door, um, there was a sign up. They hadn't opened up yet for the season. And I was getting ready to turn around. I was definitely doing the, if no one answers the door or nobody's there, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. I turned around to leave and this girl caught my eye that was working in the lobby and she kind of waved me down and came to the door and I was like, oh, great. And I said, this is a, is Lois here? That's Lois Smith, the previous owner who ran the bowl paid for 35 years all the places for sale. She's like, oh yeah, she's just making up some of the beds. And right at that time, Lois came around the corner and embraced me in the largest, biggest hug. And I knew at that moment, I was like, I'm done. That's it. We're buying this and place. You know and I haven't even seen it yet. Also, I'm thinking if Hemingway had a hangout spot, that'd be it. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, we need there to be that plus a whiskey bar. <laughs> that, so that's what, that's what's happening. Dunraven would have approved. Plus they're doing lots of cool stuff, bringing in live music, a new chef, they're sprucing up the rooms, but most importantly, they're preserving the history. The guest register, which is still intact since the day of opening, shows the likes of Mae West, Jack Dempsey, Betty Grable, and Gregory Peck stayed here. It's a part of Estes Park's folklore. 
but it all started with a mystery. I believe it was in 1914 when uh, Seven Keys to Bald Peyton was written by Earl Digger Biggs. It really took off. It became a very popular book that was then also put on Broadway. So it was showcased in New York City, really got quite the following. And the author was coming through and the Mace family said, hey, this place is like the little inn in your book. Do you mind if we name it after um, the inn in your book? which is where the former name, the Baldpate Inn, and the new name, the Seven Keys Lodge, comes from. Now, in that story, a man comes to a mountain lodge just like this to write a novel. He's alone, he's told he's the only one who has a key. But in the middle of the night, seven other people, each with keys to the property of their own, begin appearing. And that inspired Ethel and Gordon to start a tradition which spiraled completely out of control. There's the seven keys, right, that were from these guests that came in. And that started the gifting of keys to the guests when they would come and stay here. So the maces would give a key as a memento. But then World War I happened and the price of metal went through the roof and they could no longer afford to keep giving keys out. It was kind of cost prohibitive. But I think there was a conversation between Gordon Mace and a lawyer friend of his, and he was kind of telling him the predicament. And this lawyer said, well, why don't you see if you can get the guests to give a key in return. And so with that became the key collection and guests started leaving keys and it became who could give the neatest, the most abstract, obtuse, different, crazy key. And oh my goodness, did they succeed. Mark and Meredith take us into the key room, which houses the collection and now doubles as Mark's whiskey bar. And my jaw drops. This is the key room. And so there is an estimated just shy of 30,000 keys in the key room right now that you can see. They've got it all sectioned off by state and location on the ceiling. It's kind of a grid. It is enormous. There are so many keys hanging from the ceiling that you can't actually see the ceiling. They're all tagged and they all actually have um, a number on them. So you can yep. see a lot of these will have some documentation. So they've all been logged. Yeah, so. so if you start down there and come this way, the majority of them are 1920s and 30s. And <laughs> I just pulled one out at random and it was the Chicago Playboy Club from oh, 1944. Yes. I don't know what that says about me and my luck, but yeah, there you go. I like and then Meredith shows me one of her favorites and asks me to read the note that was sent with it. Dear Mrs. Mace, you may add to your collection these keys to our cabin, which we visited you in July. We completed our trip without any trouble, only to be hit by a train the next day. <laughs> Didn't expect that one coming. <laughs> Fortunately, Nancy was not along and no one was badly hurt. <laughs> oh my God, and there's the car hit by a train. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just the start because the strangest and most valuable keys are on display in the back room. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. 
Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. These are, let's see, I think the one to Westminster Abbey and the key to Frankenstein's castle right there in the green. This was a, there's a space shuttle key. There's a key to Hitler's side desk, Hitler's home. It's the liquor cabinet key for the Baron Rothschild Mansion in Gretz, France. I bet that's a pretty good wine collection I'm down sure. there. Yeah. I wonder if we can still break in. <laughs> <laughs> What's this one down here? You see all these keys yeah. and you're tempted to try a few out. Yeah, you know, it's been funny. I have had um, several keys sent to us. They would tell me their address and say, the key to my wine cabinet. But wherever dogs, they're good guard dogs. I'm thinking, you, I really could just show up. and. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's keys to the Vatican, the Capitol building, the Pentagon, Mozart's wine cellar. It is by far the largest collection of keys in the world and definitely something that Ethel and Gordon should be proud of for starting. But maybe they're a little too proud. Mm -hmm. So I got to ask because it was Ethel and Gordon Mace that founded it. And I hear they're quite fond of their key room and occasionally (laughs) like to pop back. Is that true? I have not experienced anything yet except for um, I was working in the office one day and Mark had come over with our dog and they left. I mean, I had just texted him. He was like, I just got back up to the cabin. And I swear to you that the dog was running up and down the hallway upstairs. And I was like, I'm just going to pretend like Mocha's in the building. <laughs> but your dog wasn't upstairs. My dog was not upstairs. No, I was here by myself. So I just pretended One like... One of those things mm-hmm. always happen when you're by yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes they don't. If you look in the historical record, there are reports of people's cigarettes being mysteriously extinguished while they're smoking them. Gordon hated smoking. And Ethel, well, apparently she likes nothing more than spilling people's drinks and flinging cocktail glasses around the room. And then Mark tells me about a hidden stash they found in the basement under the main lodge. I tell you what, she stirred the hornet's nest up, though. <laughs> so here's what happened. So there's this undercarriage under here, and there's all kinds of stuff. So we get these like cool like jars and crates and really cool 1900s stuff. Then she comes in with a like a crate of Ethel's, looks like wedding shoes, wedding dress, stuff like that. It's like, oh, look what I found. I'm like, you're out. Yeah, so she's going to get haunted like crazy. Nuh-uh. I talk to Ethel all the time. I'm like, oh Ethel, help gosh. me with this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I fix this or quit making this break? I don't know. I think as far as inheriting ghosts go, you've done pretty well. They seem like a nice couple, yeah. right? <laughs> After the key room, they show us upstairs where Ethel's old room was and apparently can still be found in her rocking chair from time to time. Sadly, we didn't find Ethel or the ghost dog, but we did find Mark's guitar collection, which is almost as big as the key collection. And that meant there was a treat in store for us. This is a historic guitar itself, 1948 Martin. Yeah, so this is a, a 
not a real up tempo song, but it's a uh, currently number one on Billboard's uh, Texas music chart. So yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess I ought to stop and put some gas in this old truck. Seems like it's pretty cheap these days. I think I'll fill it up. Drive on out to Dad's old house, see how he's getting along. Since Mama passed away, he says it just don't feel like home. But I hope I'm holding you I don't know what the future holds But I hope I'm holding you The Bullpate Inn was founded on a mystery, a mystery novel. Where the heck they found some of those keys is also a mystery and probably always will be. And whether or not Ethel and Gordon decided to stick around, well, that's for you to decide. Either way, the Seven Keys Lodge is a part of Estes Park's history, and I couldn't leave without doing one last thing. So guys, I want to give you key number, what is it, 29,857? <laughs> it's not as fancy as Westminster Abbey, but it is my key to my old London house. Don't tell the new tenants, but there you go. That's yes. so cool. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. We can't wait to hang it All up. All right, I'll come back and have a look then. Sounds yes. good. Okay, Thanks for coming. Thank you. So Ethel and Gordon didn't make an appearance for us. It was a lot of fun visiting. Maybe they'll make an appearance for you when you come up. And as far as ghosts go, well, you can't get much nicer than them anyway. But there's other tales here, tales in Rocky Mountain National Park that have been told around campfires for more than a hundred years. And the most famous of all is the legend of the blue mist. Two mysteries down, one myth is left. We head over to the other side of town by the Fall River to meet up with Curtis again, who's gonna tell us one of Rocky Mountain's most infamous ghost stories. We're here just near the historic Fall River Hydro plant, just outside of Estes Park. And I love this spot, not only because it's a beautiful spot and we can hear the sound of the river, a little bit of uh, sun going down, twilight time, just that feeling like it's getting a little cooler in the air. Maybe if there were something misty to move our way, this would be the time. But I also love this spot because we're just on the border of Rocky Mountain National Park and right on the other side of that border, right here along Fall River, you would continue on to the Aspen Glen Campground and then up into Horseshoe Park. And then as many uh, hikers know, and for those who uh, wanna do a little uh, trail exploration, of course, there are some great trails on Mount Chapin. And if you go hiking on Mount Chapin, you're likely to run into some interesting things. You might find some stones and some trails and some steps, like some human formed these and had great intention. And you might find some remnants of an old cabin that was once there. That is Minor Bill's cabin. He's the star of our story. And it is true. If you look carefully on Mount Shapin, even to this day, you might find some of the remnants of his old mining operation there. 
There's another Bill in this story, Wrangler Bill Robinson, who was a cowboy and a storyteller just like Curtis. And he lived in Estes Park from the 1950s until his death in 2016. And it was that Bill, Bill Robinson, who first brought this legend to life. I'm going to tell uh, this great story and we'll pay tribute to Bill Robinson as we do. Before I step into Bill Robinson's shoes, I'm going to frame it with a song that a friend of mine wrote he got to meet Bill Robinson and heard that story in its original form around the campfire. And he wrote these lyrics to a song called Minor Bill's Cabin Chronicle. And it starts off like this. It goes, Minor Bill Currents lived up Fall River Canyon, had a mine midst the crags of Mount Chapin. When I pass the place, it still gives me a shiver to think of all that must have happened up on Fall River. Bill Robinson is my name, and yeah, I work over at Fall River Lodge in the livery there. And uh, well, I'm gonna tell you that uh, over the years I've heard from a, a friend of mine named Mr. Torlin, Troy Torlin, and uh, this is his story about meeting Minor Bill many years ago and the strange fate that led him to flee his cabin. Now. One day, and this was before World War II, Troy says that he went on a backpacking trip in Rocky Mountain National Park, and he skied and snowshoed along the Ute Trail, and then was coming back this way on the way toward Mount Chapin. Now, in those days, it's hard to imagine now, but in those days, you might be in Rocky Mountain National Park and you could go for days, not see another soul, and that was, Nice in a way, but it also made it a little more scary in that uh, if you lost your way, there might not be anybody to find you. And on this particular night, as the cool air and the fog set in on Mount Chapin, well, Troy found himself lost, wondering if he'd find his way back. And there in the distance was the light. And he knew to go toward the light. He couldn't quite make out what it was. And as he got closer, he discovered it was, I don't know, rustic old cabin. Well, he, he was hungry and lost and he didn't know what to expect, but he, he took a chance and knocked on that door. And inside he heard some footsteps. Little by little, that door creaked open. And when it opened, there was a man on the other side, a man who Looked like he might not take a liking to strangers come on his property. And Troy says he kind of sized him up, looked him over. And Troy said, uh, well, uh, I'm sorry to bother you, sir, but I was out snowshoeing and I, I got lost and your cabin, the light of your cabin helped me find my way. And he came to know later that this fellow was none other than minor Bill Currents. And the fellow came up and said, well, all right then, come on in. Dinner's on the stove. Get yourself in and get warmed up. <laughs> and that night was the beginning of a great friendship. And he made a promise to come back and visit Minor Bill. Troy went back over the years. Those later visits became a little bit more ominous. It seemed like every time Troy would come back, well, Bill would have some crazy story to tell. He seemed like he was getting more jittery and worried and afraid. And one day when Troy went back to Bill's cabin, 
Bill was all nervous. Bill took him out to this tree outside his property. And he said, that's what's worrying me. Look up at that. And they looked up at this tree and well, there were these marks on the tree. And Troy said, Bill, that's probably a bear that climbed up that tree. Oh, that ain't no bear. That ain't no bear. If you was here the night that moved in, that you would know that ain't no bear. Hmm. Well, it all culminated one night when Troy became really worried about Bill. He was, that old miner hermit was so agitated, pacing and nervous. And what are you so worried about? And that night, almost kind of a night, kind of like tonight with the cool weather moving in and the sky getting darker, just a little bit of twilight. Well, off in the distance, well, Troy could see there off in the distance as you look toward uh, Mount Epsilon and the Needles, those formations, there was this strange cloud kind of parked on the horizon. And Bill pointed it out. Well, at first Troy just shrugged his shoulders, but he went down to sleep and tried to go to sleep, but he kept hearing Bill's footsteps around the living room. And then he started to hear uh, Bill's dog a bark and howling. What's out there? Well, Troy got up and, and there was Bill saying, you see it? Do you see it? There it is. And wouldn't you know, that cloud, as if hoisted above the divide, came closer and closer. And then all of a sudden, that strange bluish cloud came and settled around one of the trees outside Bill's cabin. And the two of them just watched that night and wondered and waited. Well, after that, Troy went back and told the fellows at Fall River Lodge what had happened. And he said, I don't know what that was. It was the strangest thing. Because the next morning, we went out to see that tree where the mist had landed. And there in the morning light, we saw one, two, three claw marks. It must have been way up in the tree. Now, now had that been a bear, it would have broken some branches and I couldn't imagine it climbing that high, but way up toward the top of that tree, those one, two, three claw marks. Well, the fellows at Fall River Lodge, one night, some weeks later, we're awakened about three in the morning. The sound of a car outside and crashing sound and some yelling, banging on doors. And it was Troy. And he said, fellas, fellas, I need your help. Fellas, something's happened to Bill. We gotta get some help for him, fellas. Well, they, they got in the vehicle and got as close as they could in their vehicles to Minor Bill's cabin. And when they found him, oh, Bill was bleeding bad. Well, they, they got his head sort of bandaged up and got him in that vehicle and took him into town to the, the one doctor in town who was Doc Mall in Estes Park. And Doc said, fellas, I, I'm gonna help Bill out as much as I can here, but you gotta drive him to Greeley. I know there's a snowstorm, but you gotta get him to Greeley. If he's gonna make it, he needs to get to the hospital. And so during that snowstorm, uh, I and some of the other fellows from the Fall River Lodge, we got Bill down. And sorry to say that was, was the last time that Minor Bill ever 
spent any nights on his cabin. He never returned that night. And later we went to ask Troy what had happened that night. And Troy said, well, it happened again. That strange blue mist moved in to one of the trees by Bill's cabin. And this time, Bill had had it. He was agitated. He was almost just going crazy. There was a strange look in his eye. And he had, he had got out his shotgun and he went up to that blue mist up in the tree and he fired up. And when he did, a giant limb came a crashing down on Bill and it knocked him out. Oh, fellas, I wasn't sure when I saw him that he was gonna make it, but that's how it all ended. And you may not believe it too, but I've seen it. I've seen that blue mist. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't ever want to go back up Mount Chapin to that cabin. Fellas, you, you go back and you get his belongings because I know Bill, Bill is never going to be able to return there again. Well, all of this may be a story, maybe the crazy talk of some hermit miner, his imagination, and maybe his friend who just in the course of a long night and lack of sleep just got to seeing things. But I'll tell you what, over the years, there are other strange stories, phenomenon. Well, like there was that, not too many years ago, there was that group of hikers from, I think they was from Minnesota and they came out here. Some of them said they, they were gonna go uh, maybe all the way up, all the way up to the divide. But they turned around and came back when some of them said the weather moved in. And some of them said that their friends had seen this kind of strange, misty cloud moving in. Some of them had the fore, foresight to turn back and others didn't. And folks, I don't know that those folks have been seen since then. There was that group of hikers from Longmont not too many years ago and similar thing. They went up hiking up Mount Lady Washington and all but one of them decided to turn back when the weather moved in but there was one who went on. And the strangest thing was when they, when they finally found her, she was surrounded by a bank of snow. And they say that there were no footsteps visible in the snow, but as they looked around, they saw in the snow, the one, two, three claw marks leaving an indentation in that fresh, morning snow. Well, I don't know what to make of it. I know the weather moves in in strange ways. I know that you can look at a tree one day and see that fresh bark and come out the next morning and see something's been scratching at that tree. And what is it? So I always encourage people to look around, be aware of their surroundings. I'll leave you with this. This is the end passage to that song, Minor Bill's Cabin Chronicle, and he, he ended it like this. You can call me a liar, but remember what I'm saying. When the blue mist surrounds you, you better get to praying. Call it a fable, call it what you will. When the blue mist's on the move, just remember Minor Bill. When you hear a dog a howling, think back to Minor Bill. When you see claw marks on the trees, 
Remember Minor Bill. When the clouds are on the ground, just remember Minor Bill. Whether or not you believe the legend of the blue mist is up to you. Two things that are indisputable, though, are that Minor Bill was a real person and Wrangler Bill knew how to tell a story. One of the things that people find so fascinating if you go walking the trails on Mount Chapin here is you see the stonework and the steps and you see the determination and people have scratched their heads and say, this miner who never really did strike it rich or find the mother load on Mount Chapin. He never gave up his determination. And people wonder, um, are amazed at how much work, intricate work he put into um, the area here. He may have been a tad eccentric, at least that's what the people in town thought, but he was also incredibly smart. He invented a new kind of soaring machine. He actually worked with F.O. Stanley, the famous founder of the Stanley Hotel on some engineering projects. So the history is true, and that's what Wrangler Bill used to make the myth so compelling. As I sit alone tonight, the stars I think Bill Robinson was either conscious or had the magic of intuition on several of the things that made their way into the story. One, of course, is those strange weather phenomenon that we have in, in the mountains where um, you can be resting uh, in the sunshine and you close your eyes for a little bit and then you realize it's getting later in the day and cooler and suddenly clouds are forming, it's that fog moving in. and So the blue mist is something we can relate to just from a pure um, phenomenon of our environmental experience. Another thing, of course, are those marks that animals leave. And Bill talks about not a two-toed creature or a four-toed creature, but I think it's interesting that he chose a three-clawed creature to leave a mark because there's something about that that seems rather unusual. Someone could look at marks on a tree and say, bear left that, or uh, you know, maybe there was a raccoon or a beaver, but those fresh three claw marks seem rather strange. It seems more like something that would be a little bit otherworldly. And the other thing that I think is so fascinating is the story of minor Bill Currents himself, who was an eccentric character. Of course, it makes us think about Estes Park and we're not a mining town like you find on the Western Slope or even a place like Nederland. But um, there was mining activity, and the fact that there's not a lot of history kind of tells the story that no one ever really found, uh, uh, there was never really a boom time, uh, but people did try mining, and Miner Bill was one of those who did it uh, in kind of that classic old hermit prospector way, and we almost sort of a, uh, a character we can all imagine. Is that what makes a good ghost story, the weaving of fact and fiction together? So there's like that little nugget of reality there too. For me, the best ghost stories are ones where I feel like, yeah, I enjoyed the story, but I also learned some history along the way. And it made me kind of want to find out more about the history that was woven into the story, whether it's a building or a, a historic figure that appears. We will blaze a trail up yonder you and 
History can make myths more believable and ghost stories more scary too. But there's also just something about campfires. We're drawn to campfires. They're they're warm. There's something about a communal experience, maybe a sense of safety around them in a otherwise kind of dark night. Here is a this oasis where you can feel safe with others and the aroma, the crackling sound, those little sparks flying up into the air. And I can only think that it's woven into our psyche because we as a species have been gathering around campfires. And yeah, we have our now we have these fancy modern devices. We have movies and television and we have all kinds of media, but I think there's something innate about coming and hearing a story. We certainly know from our history that stories are a way that we pass on knowledge from one generation to the next. We pass on wisdoms, insights, stories give us meaning, they give us context for who we are and how we interact with others around us. Stories are powerful. They're one of the defining characteristics of human beings. It's how we understand ourselves. It's how we learn about the world. They teach us empathy and morality. They guide us and shape our beliefs. And the most powerful stories of all are the ones which leave us wondering, which get our imaginations firing. They are the mysteries which we just can't get out of our head. I love mysteries. There's a problem-solving sector of our brain that is we're hearing a story or after we hear it, we're trying to put the facts together and say, can I rationalize this? Is there some explanation? And then there's, I think, a part of our mind that's just enjoys the mystery of it and the fact that, yeah, this stays with me because, hmm, the fact that I can't quite solve this is just as just as intriguing to me as the part of it that I can rationalize and explain. In the case of the blue mist, just like in any good ghost story, it's leaving someone with, well, here's what I know, but here's a little bit for you to think about what we don't know. And and everybody goes back thinking, hmm, yes. (laughs) And, uh, you know, yeah, I feel safe now, but once the lights go out and it's quiet and you're in your bed, you start to think about, well, I, I heard a sound outside or, I heard the wind kicking up and I might have been able to go to sleep, but now I'm thinking back to that story, that creepy story I heard. (laughs) And those tales don't just stay at the campfire. They sink into the ground and become a part of the landscape. The myths and mysteries of Estes Park are as much a part of its history as Isabella Bird, Joel Estes, Griff Evans, and all the other people who helped found this town. Legends and myths are stories that um, make us think engage us, uh, stir the creative, imaginative side of our brain. And so that's what I think is important about sharing stories like this. They are part of our history. Yeah, if I went back 50, 60 years, you mentioned Bill Robinson. Yeah, lots of people knew. Now there's fewer and fewer people. I can even see it in going back 20, 30 years. You would mention the Blue Mist, and there were a lot of people that would say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. And now there's fewer and fewer people and that have heard of the Blue Mist. And that's what's exciting about being able to uh, uh, share the story with a whole other segment of people who are hearing about this for the very first time. And now when they go into both Estes Park and Rocky Mountain National Park, we'll have that odd context of saying, um, yeah, I know there's one more layer of, of meaning that I now get to experience. 
I um, have the good fortune of being able to uh, have a vocation where I've found a kind of an, uh, an opportunity to tell stories and tell history and um, kind of select and arrange uh, stories from a body of history. And I always feel like I'm kind of carrying this precious gift of someone's story when I get to do that. It's a um, kind of living moment each time we, we tell a story. It's dark now, the sun has set and the colors have all turned to gray. I haven't found any buried whiskey. I haven't seen any ghosts. I know the shadows in the forest are looking a little spooky behind me. There's no blue mist or minor bill come to visit yet. But that's not really the point. Myths and mysteries have been a part of human history since we first started painting figures on cave walls. Stories are what makes us human. They are how we understand ourselves and the world around us. And as long as there are campfires, there will be tales to tell. So curl up around one tonight, because you never know what Rocky Mountain mysteries might be waiting just around the corner. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Exploring Estes Park. You can download a guide to Estes Park's myths and mysteries from visitestespark.com and keep listening. Our next episode will explore Rocky Mountain National Park's indigenous connections and take us back more than 100 years to a special trip that was instrumental in the founding of the park itself. So keep telling those stories, keep sitting around campfires, keep looking for those myths and mysteries which are part of the fabric of this town. But whatever you do, beware of a blue mist rising on the horizon. Exploring Estes Park is produced by House of Pod in partnership with Visit Estes Park. I'm your host, Aaron Miller. I also wrote and produced this episode. Our audio and story editor is Jason Patton, and Juliette Luini provided additional production assistance. A very special thank you to Curtis Kelly for telling us these stories in such an engaging and entertaining way. He's a professional storyteller, and if you want to hire him for your campfire tales, just head over to characterinfusion.com. Huge thank you also to Mark and Meredith Powell for showing us around the Seven Keys Lodge. They're a great company, and whether you're just visiting for the key room, coming for dinner, or staying the night, you're gonna have a lot of fun. Find out more at sevenkeyslodge.com. A huge shout out to Josh Harms and the rest of the team at Visit Estes Park for making this episode possible and bringing this story to you. I'll see you next time on Exploring Estes Park. Thanks for listening to this Armchair Explorer on location episode. I had a ton of fun making it. I hope you had a ton of fun coming along with me. Next week, we'll be back with our usual format and then there'll be lots more on location stuff to come. 